I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here by Zoom, spiritually at the Kelly Writers House in Philadelphia, but you know, the medium is Zoom, by Angela Carr, uh, whose most recent uh, poetry collection is Without Ceremony, Book Hug 2020, and whose other poetry books include Rope Walk, Snare 2006, The Rose Concordance, Book Hug 2009, before we called it Book Hug, I guess, and Here and There, a book I really like, as you know already, Angela, because I've told you that, who translates from French to English, and a recent book-length poetry translation being Ardor by Nicole Broussard, Coach House Books 2015, and whose essay on Nicole Broussard's early novels is forthcoming in a collection edited by Lainey Brown, who teaches poetry and poetics courses at the New School in New York and is currently working on a novel, which was news to me. Congratulations on that. And by Simone White, who has a forthcoming book of poems coming out from Duke University Press entitled Or On Being the Other Woman, and whose previous books include Dear Angel of Death, 2018, and of Being Dispersed, 2016, and whose recent critical prose pieces include Visual Meditations on Black Masculinity, African American Museum in Philadelphia, in art form, uh, Pope L. Walks Into a Room, a really good piece I just recently read, also published in Art Forum, February 2020, and a short essay on Erica Hunt's poem, The Voice of No, to be published soon in The Differences Spreading 50 Poets on 50 Poems, and who, I'm glad to say, is my colleague here at the University of Pennsylvania, and by Kate Colby, who a poet who lives in Providence, Rhode Island, has taught at Brown University, is the author of several books of poetry and essays, including I Mean of 2015, about which we did an episode of Poem Talk, and The Arrangements, 2019, and Dream of the Trenches, also 2019, who is currently working uh, very slowly, she says pointedly, on a book of lyric prose about time, several of whose poems are featured in the syllabus of the open online course called, not the new book, but a previous book, uh, called Modpo. Kate is in Modpo, and who has appeared on the YouTube series called Modpo Minute, talking about others and her own poems. Kate, hi, how are you? How are things in Providence? We're still here. We're still here, that's <laughs> what you can say. I think all three of you are going to say that. Simone, it's good to see you. Uh, nice to see you. And Angela, hello. Hello, thanks, Al. Um, we're, the four of us have gathered here today to talk about a prose poem by Elizabeth Willis. It's called The Similitude of This Great Flower. It was first published in the Cordite Poetry Review in January of 2008. And our recording of the poem comes from a close listening session hosted by Charles Bernstein on March 17th, 2008. Uh, so here now is Liz Willis performing The Similitude of This Great Flower. 
the similitude of this great flower. These vines are trim. I take them down. I have my mother's features in my heart, the darkest gem tripping in the tar an affinity for Iceland. The world is clanking, noun, noun, noun. Sand in the shoe doesn't make you an oyster. This river runs constantly. The similitude of this great flower, its violent fame. Forfeit your interests while moonlight chucks the sun. Is the dog behind glass glassed in? Heaven's voice has hell behind it. I'm looking at the evil flower, a fly in the keyhole trying to read the wall. It says we haven't died despite the cold. It sells the green room's sweat and laughter. It's misty in the dream. It says you promised to go on. The prose poem consists of sentences which do and don't connect. They do and don't create any kind of cause and effect connection. They do and don't relate to each other. Um, so I wonder, Simone, would you pick any two sentences that don't seem to flow? And that, that means we can, you know, we can get started on trying to figure out why she deploys the sentences this way. In a way, we can figure out the operation based on any two, two sentences, right? Yeah, that's right. The world is clanking, now, now, now. Sand in the shoe doesn't make you an oyster. What about those two? So the second sentence feels aphoristic. It feels like faux advice or something. And the first is lovely, but we don't quite know what to do with it in relation to the shoe, the sand in the shoe. Can you start on it, Simone? You know, I was, I was trying to think about how parataxis might be operating in this poem or, or whether there's some other like controlling um, sort of prosodic thing. And I, and I guess it wasn't so much the operation of parataxis or like a parent not, in, not being connected that I was interested in because the world is clanking now, now, now is, is a kind of explanation of what, you, what you've just asked, right? Like, mm, it is. Uh, I, um, I, you know, maybe a declaration of uh, the poets not being um, so interested in making linear type or logical connections or grammatical connections from, mm -hmm. from explanation to explanation, but, mm -hmm. but more in a state of confusion about the noise of uh, individual words. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, I, I became more interested in reading the poem in the ways in which um, images or other kinds of figures were working with statements or, or something like that. Um, because the world is clanking now, 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 like is a kind of figurative speech, right? Like words maybe don't clank, although maybe they do. If you think about the ways in which on a, on a what is it the word? On a <laughs> onomatopoeia, onomatopoetic. <laughs> that's that. Um, if There's a think, clanking there. Yeah, that, that's a clanking. Um, but words don't like you know, bang to the ground or whatever, like mm. metal, metal. Mm. Um, and then, so, sand in the shoe doesn't make you an oyster. Like, what's the relation of that to, um, you know, cacophony? I don't know. That is the question. Yes. All right, Angela, 
we don't know. Can you help us with that? I mean, <laughs> I is, and the other meta question, Angela, is should a reader who it's just so lovely to read this poem and to hear Liz Willis perform it. One doesn't need to put the things together, but since we've given ourselves a certain amount of time on poem talk, we might as well try. <laughs> well, okay, I'm gonna go back to Simone when you started talking about the poem, you were wondering whether there was a prosodic logic to it and I can see that maybe in the first two sentences there's there's like this accent on vines trim take down right um, and then there's a sort of internal rhyme in hard and dark and tar um, in the fall and but then but then it moves more into the realm of meaning or what what nouns mean or how they mean and I was really drawn really in the first place to this line that's in quotation marks because it seems to be calling I mean it's calling attention to itself Right. Almost in a way, I wondered, is that ironic or even campy um, in the sense that, well, first there's similitude, which is a really awkward noun. Um, and then the great flower, it's not a rose or a daffodil. It's a generic flower. Mm. Um, it's also the title of the poem. And is the, I guess where I sort of wound up is if this poem is about, in some way about language, and the way language means differently for anyone at any time, um, and maybe it's a, and maybe there's also a critique in the way metaphor works in, in this similitude. You know, I start I think implicitly of uh, my love is like a red red rose, like mm -hmm. that would be the similitude of the great flower, right? And a kind of deconstruction of metaphorical language, or is it a deconstruction of representation, or both? Oh, I totally agree with that. And and Kate, you'll probably be mad at me for do, for doing this, but like I want to make the meta poetic turn uh, and ask you to comment on it, given what Angela just said. I mean, there's a this, there's a these. Them is a little more third person in real world, but this and these keep make me think of what Angela just said. And the um, this river runs constantly makes me think of the mind that makes the language, right? And the prose poem itself. So I know it's kind of pushing it to do a metapoetic reading of something that is so lovely and pointing to the a natural world around, but do you mind taking up the metapoetic thing? And could this and these refer to the writing? Oh, well, she asks us to read it that way with the world is clanking noun, noun, noun. She does, yeah. Um, which reminds me of nothing so much as the poem being a machine made of words, William Carlos Williams. And here the, the world and the, the consciousness, the subject of the poem intercut one another and she places the poem between them as this machine processing both and sort of conjoining them. Right. Um, so yes, there are a lot of um, pronouns sort of indefinite pronouns and you're not sure which noun goes with which pronoun, but that this is and these always feel very definitely to me to be pointing back to the poem itself and this idea of similitude, semblance, um, mm -hmm. and the poet, the poem working like cranking like a machine to try and generate or create something that feels real or tangible or actual. Simone, you want to take it from there? Well, yeah, I guess um, I am also, I was interested in the, the indefinite pronouns as well. And I was 
trying to sort them and count them a little bit. Apparently, the similitude of this great flower is from an Erasmus Darwin poem. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the things that I was thinking about in terms of um, the indefiniteness of the objects is that, you know, they refer actually or give us the opportunity to think about objects generally and therefore refer us to kind of like a broader or larger um, framework of, of situating like a particular kind of knowledge or moment of knowledge mm. of how objects operate within that, you know, that system. Mm. And I guess it's, if, if, if language is this river and this great flat, you know, or this great flower, yeah. that, that actually, that might actually be like a counter thesis to what I'm offering here. Um, mm. Insofar as the objects themselves then are, are repressed to a certain degree. But I, I like to think that the objects, that I want to know what the flower is. And in a way, I appreciate being referred back to this, a specific poem or a specific writer so mm. that I discover um, his, his actual objects of interest. Not that I did it, <laughs> but... <laughs> I also, can, can I ask what what was your impulse in doing that? You thought, oh, this seems to refer to other poems. I better look. Well, there are the quotation marks, and so um, the very first thing I always do when I see things in quotation marks in any poem is Google the phrase itself. <laughs> and so, and then if I can't if I can't find it that way, I start looking around in other places. In this case, there's some some material on Liz's um, sources for this poem and book. But I also, Liz is a friend of mine, so I asked her. <laughs> okay, all right. Now you can tell us, now we're warming up. Why don't you tell, tell us what Liz said and then I'll turn to Angela to respond to whatever it is we're about to put out. I only said, where I said, is this Darwin? And she said, uh, it's Erasmus Darwin. Wait, so earlier you deployed that reference without telling us that you got it from Liz herself. Oh, I see. It wasn't just Google. Not into Darwin, but I didn't know um, the title of the book. Botanic Garden, Erasmus Darwin's Botanic mm -hmm. Garden. And of course, Erasmus Darwin is the great-grandfather of Charles Darwin. Yeah. So, Angela, listeners to Poem Talk, will have begun by thinking that this is a poem about nature to some, to some extent. And now we've really done what we usually do, thanks to Simone and Liz, we've made it somewhat intertextual. So what do we do with that? I mean, be a teacher for a second. What do you do when a student says, oh no, I thought this was about nature? Well, it can be about many things at many times to many different people. Um, if I could pick up on the conversation about the pronouns, um, I also wanted to point out that they, that they're always um, like the pronouns of proximity, right? This and these, so they create this kind of intimacy, um, even if it's fleeting, because the subject is always changing. Like you said, that it's um, no two sentences seem to develop um, in a linear way, um, but there's a kind of like there's a kind of proximity there in these vines or this river. Um, that I think is important. To me, it almost makes an argument for proximity over cause and effect. Wow. 
as, a, as almost a structure for thinking and writing. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. I love that. Kate, you don't have to answer this specifically. You can just tell us what you're thinking at this point. But the cracked aphorism, or maybe it's not so cracked, is the dog behind glass glassed in? It's almost like a Cajun dilemma, right? A koan. Like, when the dog is behind glass, is it glassed in? Now, I may be overreading that as a cracked aphorism, but what do you do when you encounter something like that in a Liz Willis poem or in any poem? What's going on there? And there's somewhat the same kind of aphorism in sand in the shoe doesn't make you an oyster. It's funny, it's aphoristic, makes you think. What kind of, do you ever write like that? What kind of strategy is that? Well, I'm gonna answer that a little bit uh, sideways. Um, the poem is, it's about perception. It's, uh, you know, it questions our experience of the world to a degree where it questions itself. And that moment feels really central to me because it's so much, there's a lot of vision in the poem. There's a lot of like mistiness and darkness and dream and glass and who's on which side, who's in, who's out, seeing through who, through what. Um, so the seer, the speaker feels like she's seeing the world through glass, but it, mm -hmm. but like, is she in or out on, on which side? Like who's, which is watching whom? I don't know, I'm not being very clear, but that the whole, I mean, the poem is framed as about similitude and semblance. And, you know, it begins with this question about what's real. Um, and so as an, you know, the observations of the world, the seemingly very immediate sensory information presented in the poem is questionable right off the bat. Mm -hmm. That was not a sideways response to my well as perfectly direct uh, beautiful as an aphorism i don't i can't really speak. oh right you didn't answer the aphorism part but that's okay simone the word it at the end of the next sentence heaven's voice has held behind it it could refer to heaven's voice but it also could refer to the glassing in uh because it, there's a behind in the previous sentence as well so those two connect and this begins and we'll talk about it. This begins a kind of downbeat, dark, scary uh, ending of the poem, which we'll talk about. So what do you make of uh, Heaven's Voice Has Hell Behind? It sounds pretty apocalyptic in a way. It does have a kind of like strange house of mirrors effect, right? Where it's like, well, I'm asking this question about um, uh, recognition or something, recognition or observation or, or and then then there's a question about speaking. I can't understand it as anything other than like a kind of rotating, very fast, very, very fast um, kind of observational rotation of like speaker, um, gaze, speaker, gaze kind of um, operation going on in just those two lines a very, in a very, very small space is a very mm -hmm. compressed and kind of frightening operation mm -hmm. looking, being looked at and, um, you know, an external force as well, controlling or, or um, making possible the whole operation. Yeah. And this may be my favorite sentence in the poem. I'm looking at the evil flower in, I'm a, I'm a, a something in the keyhole trying to read the wall, a fly in the keyhole trying to read the wall. Um, 
How about that? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's complicated. Yeah. The evil flower, it, is the evil flower the fly? You know what I mean? Like we could just kind of like work on that for a little while. Well, there's a lot, I, I keep pushing what I think is underneath the tragedy and darkness is a certain comedy of, mm-hmm. of aphoristic language because you have, a, you have a fly on the wall, idiomatically. You have looking through a keyhole Mm-hmm. of looking at flowers in the Mene Bersenberger sense, you know, there's a, there's a, there is some kind of natural observation, at least in the back of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's messing with all of those idiomatic presupp- presuppositions. You know, the last three lines are pretty dark and yeah. doesn't seem to start that way, but it ends that way. I'm looking at the eagle flower makes me want to think about flowering as as a gestational or or reproductive problem i don't know if i can go any further than that but that's all i wanted to say to just to get the mom into the evil (laughs) okay so the mom has been put into the conversation and angela we also have this comment i made about the twisting of the idioms, and then also my invitation to you to talk about the depressing stuff at the end. So go anywhere you like. <laughs> um, now that, Simone, you brought up the, the House of Mirrors a few minutes ago when you were talking about the dog glass glassed in, and so now my mind is playing, you know, these reversal tricks on me while I'm looking at the poem again, and I'm seeing evil, I'm seeing it backwards as live, and in the next line, I'm seeing dead. So it died, you know, so I'm seeing this logic. Um, in the relationship between the sentences. I see a lot more connections um, in the last half of this poem than in the first half. I feel like a narrative develops in some respects, despite or because of me. (laughs) Um, And I'm seeing, um, it becomes really claustrophobic in a sense. And there's, you know, it ends with this tension on the will to live, right? It says you promise to go on. Um, First and, use of that pronoun there. Yeah, and it raises all these other questions. Who promised what to whom? Or, but it points to the will to live, right? And in tension with um, this language about God, hell, and heaven, and evil, and this sense of confinement of being looked on or, or doing the looking on oneself, but in both cases in a confined space, whether in a confined room or in a confined keyhole. Yeah, so the ending is fairly dark, I agree. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to do is ask Zach to play for us the final few lines, and let's listen to Liz's voice. I think Liz's voice is the heaven's voice. <laughs> I always do when I hear her, and no matter how grim what she's saying is I think oh there's some hope because someone's got that voice um and uh so let's listen to the last part of it and see if uh if the heaven's voice really has some hell behind it heaven's voice has hell behind it I'm looking at the evil flower a fly in the keyhole trying to read the wall It says we haven't died despite the cold. It sells the green room's sweat and laughter. It's misty in the dream. It says you promised to go on. Let's go around and each of us offer some glimpse into this dark 
an I think scary and very depressing world, but I can't put my finger on it. Who wants to go first? Yeah, I mean, I guess the poem throughout it works, you know, in a metonymic kind of way. And um, one starts to make associations between, you know, the evil, the sense of confinement being glassed in in the small room and the keyhole, um, and also the cold sweat. And, um, and then, you know, the sense of impending death or the struggle to resist death um, and the sense of finality that's also creates a kind of claustrophobia, the way the last two lines are quite short, or sentences, I guess, phrases are, you know, quite short. They're clipped. Kate, uh, do you want to take a turn on the darkness of the end? It is dark. It's also hopeful for the kind of poet who wants to work, for whom the work is the pleasure and the point and the reward. You know, we're all, it, the poem to me is a lot about like straining to see, straining to understand, trying to wrest some kind of mm. uh, comprehension. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, thwarting elements and mist and darkness and things are only ever about to happen. Um, mm. But you go on and you keep fighting through the... And your you in saying you go on is yourself, oneself not someone else. I mean, I, I, I read uh, Liz Willis poems as often as possible, and I, the selected poems is just in the other room here, and I look at it all the time. And there is sometimes another person in the room. During the Gathering Paradise, uh, I'm just going to read a few lines of a poem that I really admire by Liz Willis, and there's a person to whom she comes home. She comes home to a person, a partner of some kind. And it's very lovely. And there's a you there that is some other. I think the you here is what Kate's saying, which is, yeah, you look at an evil flower. This is what poets do of the type of poet you are. And what it says, meaning the flower tells you something, it interprets life. And it says, you promise to go on, keep going in the writer's sense. I think that's partly what Kate's saying. Simone, the darkness. I, I don't see any hopefulness here. <laughs> see any I I actually and that's actually what I love about the poem it's it is it has a kind of neutrality uh neither defeat nor hope is promised to us in the world in which we live um you know the struggle to survive is is all there is whether flower or wall you know the flower and all of the sort of like misgivings or or you know aesthetic traditions of, of naturalism or pastoral dissolve in that word wall for me. Mm. And you don't know what it's going to say. You know, you don't know what it's going to say. It may say nothing. And the green room is like, I think, a brilliant insertion there. Oh, so scary, that green room. Yeah. It's um, not just a green room. It's a green room where you wait. <laughs> where you're waiting. Um, waiting to go on. Yourself. Yeah, to perform Ooh. yourself. And Ooh. You know, and the and then the thing dissolves. It's misty in the dream. You're you're no longer even in a setting of observational reality. You know, you're not in a phenomenological setting. You're like, maybe it's here, maybe it's not. Mm. <laughs> it's a it's a very stingy poem. Mm. And, you know, I think that is pretty terrific. Yeah, I don't. I I think we actually agree. I think Kate points to the last line saying, you know, the promise to go on is sort of not. It's not. Um, 
luxuriously and fully going on. It's a sort of bear going on, a sort of late Wallace Stevens going on or a Sam Beckett going on. But you do well, it. Can I qualify that? I mean, it, it's, as Simone was saying, it, it evinces a struggle. Like, right. for me, it's the, the poet's struggle, like the real, like, skin and teeth struggle to survive. But yeah. I don't know. That's why I write. Yeah. Uh, let me take a shot at the darkness and then invite all of us to offer final words. So, something that you expected to say in this discussion but didn't have a chance to yet. Um, and I don't know where I'm going to go with this. I want to take up, um, not challenge so much as hope that we would figure out what to do with the mother uh, and then say something about the end. So the first sentence really got me. These vines are trim. I'll, I take them down. Well, I, I've done some vine trimming and caring for in my time. And when they're trim, you don't take them down. They've been taken care of. And then what seems to be a paratactic break, I had my mother's features in my heart. I think actually it's not a break. She's thinking, I'm the kind of person who takes care of these domestic uh, decorations around the house. Like, she, I guess my mom was kind of severe about these things. Like, they're trim, let's take them down. And then you get something cold like Iceland, an affinity for Iceland. Um, She's sort of creating a kind of maternal identity there in how she deals with what she sees. And then, so there's, la there's no warmth. Uh, I'm not saying that Liz Willis biographically is saying something about her mother being cold. I'm, th I'm, I'm thinking about the way people think or think about the mother in a maybe symbolic way, not a personal way, or maybe both. But then you get to the end and it's cold and we're barely not dead. There's something, what happens when, the, when there's that lack of warmth? The person who takes, who, who trims the vine and then takes them down or finds someone else who trimmed them and then takes them down and remembers essentially a cold heart with an affinity for Iceland, struggles in the end not to die in the cold. And whoa, um, that is what gets you to go on, that recognition of coldness. So I'm over reading it, but I think that the poem starts and ends with that connection. Okay, final thoughts. Uh, let's go around, Angela, first. Something you wanted to say about this poem or about Liz Willis in general, or about poetry in general, um, that you didn't get a chance to yet. Well, I wasn't intending to say this, but it, it just occurred to me as we were talking. I thought maybe there's also an illusion embedded in the evil flower to Baudelaire. Um, yes, the flowering of evil, right? Uh-huh. Flowers of evil? Yeah, particularly because it's a prose poem as well. I could probably cook up some argument about that illusion. Um, but yeah, I guess the first thing I, I loved listening to the poem when I heard, uh, I listened to the, the audio. But then when I looked at it, the first question I asked myself is, you know, why is it a prose poem? Simone, final thought? Well, just this is a great example of uh, this is a thought about poetry in general, which is that I, I think this poem, listening to the audio and reading the poem for the purpose of this conversation, um, sort of like makes me, I'm a dumb reader of poems. <laughs> I tend to start with nothing. Like I have, I don't, I 
I often have like zero affectability at the beginning of my reading poems. I don't feel affected by it. And, and the joy of, of reading the poem for a purpose is often that you discover inside the poem all its operations and it opens up to you in such a beautiful way. Mm. A great example of a poem whose power reveals itself when you look for it. You know? mm. And otherwise, it might not reveal itself, and that's and it doesn't clamor for um, understanding, which I actually also really mm. that was lovely and inspiring. And I, it makes me and now since I'm your colleague, uh, I'm I'm I just should say that I'm saying this metaphorically. I'm not asking you to do this, but I so want to be a student of yours in some kind of poetry 101, so that every day you can say what you just said about you know, what poetry can do that so many other things can't. So I'll just say that. I'm not telling you you have to teach poetry 101. It's, <laughs> uh, it's hard to do that. Kate, oh. final thought? Oh, well, I'm going to double up on my paradise here and recommend um, a few years ago, uh, Elizabeth Willis gave the inaugural annual CD Wright lecture at Brown. Mm. Um, and it's a kind of abecedarian of CD Wright's work. And it's really, an, I've listened to it many times, and it is just an incredible example of the, I guess this is oxymoronic, but the fluidity of her paratactic hinges. Mm. Um, and it's on the Literary Arts website at Brown. I highly recommend it. It's just beautiful. That's great. You but it, it really, I mean, that, that, that movement moves through all of her work and that it really um, was exemplified in that lecture. It's fantastic. That's great. So you managed to get in a Gathering Paradise in the final thoughts section. That's great. So you're going to get another Gathering Paradise. And it is indeed time for Gathering Paradise. We'd like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all of us, if you're quick, to, uh, to recommend something good going on or something interesting going on in the poetry world, uh, or someone who's doing interesting things in the poetry world. So, Angela, do you want to begin? What, what, what are you recommending these days? Um, well, I, I just want to talk about the best book I've read recently in the past, you know, few weeks. Please. Uh, so this is um, um, a Canadian writer, Phil Hall, and this must be his, I don't know, 20th book. Or, I think he started publishing in the 70s, mm -hmm. and he's an amazing writer. Um, the way the music sounds, the leaps, the there's not really much emphasis on the sentence in here at all. It's is it easy to acquire? I don't know. Okay. I, ordered, I mean, I ordered it directly from the publisher, Peddler Press. Mm. Phil is a, he's an amazing poet. If you haven't read his work, it's called Niagara and Government, and there's this sort of surrealistic ampersand titling throughout. Mm. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Thank you, Angela. Kate, gather some paradise. Well, I have here Mary Kim Arnold's um, recent book from Noemi Press. I highly recommend it. It's just gorgeous and heartrending and rigorous at the level of language. Um, it's from the perspective of a woman adopted from Korea who is trying to piece together 
her past or her legacy, maybe um, from images of the war, but simultaneously clawing her way out of the patriarchal present. Um, and it just, it, it, it's unbelievable. That's great. Thank you. Simone, gather some paradise. Sorry, can I, can I interrupt one second about Phil? One of the blurbs on the back, I love this. It says, I read Killdeer. That was one of Phil's previous books. Then I wondered why I'd wasted my life writing prose from Alice Monroe. Oh, that's a pretty good blurb. Wow. Some Canadiana for you. That is great. <laughs> oh, Canada. Sorry, Simone. Simone. <laughs> yeah, there's some paradise. Top that. Got anything Canadian for us? Nothing, no. I, I, but what I can say is that I, in the start of the semester, one of the things that I haven't done is read much poetry because I'm teaching a course on WEB Du Bois and teaching a graduate theory course. But one of the things that I think I want to say as I was sitting here listening was that I, I just want to re-emphasize that teaching Du Bois, like I want people to go back and read The Souls of Black Folk like every year, once a year, people should read The Souls and think, of, and think about the ways in which it functions as a kind of, if, if everybody could write a 130 page book that seemed to incorporate every aspect of contemporary life, right? And there would be no such thing as a genius. Like we'd all just be right now like, but this is a genius book. Mm. Um, you know, 120 years later, still um, carries the mark of of like real poetic genius. And Simone, can you just, sorry to ask you this suddenly, but can you, in the, all the discussions you've been having with your students, tell us one thing, one point, one idea that really resonated with them or that really got everybody uh, caused awe? We've only had one class. <laughs> okay. Well. But I can, I can tell you, I guess what I can say is that my students are thinking a lot about how this is resonating with the current movement for Black Lives and how they can find um, material in this text um, that begins to not explain exactly, but uh, contextualize um, what that movement is. Great. And, I, and I feel really grateful to be able to be a part of those conversations. Great. Thank you. Um, as I promised, my gathering paradise is uh, Liz Willis' poem called Survey. And I just want to read the end of it. It's a, it's a poem. It's some years old, but it seems to predict a lot of our worries um, and challenges, particularly in climate change, social justice, and just general fear. So here is the end of Liz Willis's survey. I worry this cloud might be permanent, that a sunspot will reach out like a tongue and pull us in. I wish marijuana would bring visions to the Democratic Party. I hope the basement isn't filled with radon. I hope Dick Cheney is convicted of war crimes. I don't think God created polyester. I worry water is unaffordable. 
I hope we are not too tired to cross the border. I worry these drugs are just experimental. I worry the window can't be opened. That line really gets me. <laughs> I hope the tunnel doesn't collapse while I'm beneath the East River. I think we all need a vacation. I wish I were an oceanographer like my father or the one he could have been. I wish that time could be turned off like a machine. I hope eventually we can speak freely of everything. I'd like to graduate from the United States of plastic. I'd like to face the future as if it were a person. I'd like to touch it and still come home for dinner. I want to introduce you to my boat. I think that everything can't wait until tomorrow. I hope you're awake when I get there, that you'll be with me at the end. Those are the last lines of a poem I highly recommend, which is Paradiesel, called Survey. Well, that's all the clanking noun, noun, nouns we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests so much, Kate Colby, Simone White, Angela Carr. Thank you all. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, I will be joined by Erica Hunt, Bob Perlman, and Tanya Foster to discuss a poem by Lorenzo Thomas. It's called Souvenir of the Manasseh Ball, and it's a poem that is little known among Lorenzo's poems, quite something. This is Al Philreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.